Hey, this is David Schultz, audio producer here at Bloomberg Law. Just wanted to let you know we've created a couple new ways for you to interact with us. If you have feedback on this episode or any of our other podcasts, please give us a call and leave us a voicemail at 703-341-3690. That's 703-341-3690. We might just use your comments in a future episode. You can also reach out to us by email at podcast at bloomberglaw.com or on Twitter, at BLaw. We would love to hear your thoughts. Welcome to Cases and Controversies, a Supreme Court podcast by Bloomberg Law. I'm Kimberly Robinson. And I'm Jordan Rubin. So Jordan, we got three more opinions this week from the court with 23 left to go. And with four weeks left in the term, that's a hefty but doable lift for the justices. Of course, we're still waiting on some of the most watched cases of the term. In the meantime, the justices are turning out unanimous opinions with two of the three cases handed down this week being 9-0. Uh, so let's start with one of those unanimous opinions. Let's do it. Heard uh, it was a kind of a rough week for the Ninth Circuit, huh? It, it was. So uh, that leads us to Garland versus Ming Dai, an immigration case out of the Ninth Circuit. This was, of course, a unanimous ruling by Justice Gorsuch. Uh, this one has to do with credibility determination and the Ninth Circuit's longstanding rule that absent and explicit adverse credibility determination by immigration officials that says that the non-citizen is not credible, then federal courts that are reviewing those immigration decisions must actually credit the immigrant's version of events. So the Supreme Court unanimously rejected that rule, saying uh, no thank you, and it did so with some pretty harsh language. Justice Gorsuch noted that the rule had been in place in the Ninth Circuit, quote, over many years and over many dissents. He also called the Ninth Circuit's, quote, special rule and embellishment. Uh, Two things, though, to note about this opinion. First, the justices had a number of immigration uh, cases on its docket that were abandoned after the Biden administration took over. So these are things, you know, things like border wall funding and the public charge rule. The immigration cases that remain on the docket are more of these run-of-the-mill cases. And so far, the justices have really stuck close to the plain text of the immigration laws and have really have really limited uh, discretion here. Um, and that's included rulings both for and against the government. And then the other thing is, as I mentioned, this is part of a string of cases where the justices have shown just a lot of agreement. So over the over half of the court's cases, 21 to be exact, have been unanimous. Um, so it'll be interesting to see if that continues as we get into the more controversial cases. And Jordan, we had a case that wasn't unanimous. This was six to three, but maybe not in the way our listeners are thinking. Tell us about Van Buren versus United States. That's right. Again, we're looking at a case that was six three, but not your grandma's six three. We're gonna <laughs> head over to the East Coast to the Eleventh Circuit, give the Ninth Circuit a, a break before we go back and beat up on them again later in the episode. This is Van Buren against the United States. Nathan Van Buren was a Georgia police sergeant, uh, but he actually did some bad things. He used his patrol car computer to access a law enforcement database to run a certain license plate number. So far, so good. But he did so in exchange for money in what turned out to be, unbeknownst to him, an FBI sting. 
He was prosecuted under a federal law called the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. That's a 1980s hacking law that's been much litigated in the lower federal courts, but significant because finally it's come to the Supreme Court. And so people have been tracking this law for years, have been excited to see what the Supreme Court does with it. In this case, we're looking at the part of the law that punishes anyone who, quote, intentionally accesses a computer without authorization or exceeds authorized access, end quote, and thereby obtains computer information. The question here is how the law defines exceeding authorized access, and it does so by saying, quote, accessing a computer with authorization and to use such access to obtain or alter information in the computer that the accessor is not entitled so to obtain or alter, end quote. That word so actually winds up becoming very important and is what the decision turns on, believe it or not. That's great. They had a they had a case earlier this term that turned on the word ah. So, you know, they're getting they're tackling some bigger words now. Yeah. It's they could argue over anything, just one little one little sound. So like we said, this was a 6-3 ruling, and it was by Justice Barrett. And in that ruling, the Supreme Court said that Van Buren, he might have done a bad thing, but that bad thing, it turns out, was not a crime, at least starting now under the Supreme Court's decision. The decision limited the scope of this anti-hacking law, and it said a person exceeds authorized access when they access a computer with authorization, but then obtain information located in particular areas of the computer that are off-limits to them. So you mentioned that the majority focuses on the word so, um, kind of having a flavor of textualism. The dissent claims to be a textualist decision too, right? That's right. So we do have a split here in the avowed textualist. We have Thomas writing the dissent joined by Roberts and Alito. To understand the split here, it does hang on this word so, where you had the government saying that What matters here was the manner in which the alleged violator of the law was accessing this law. And so they looked to the plain meaning and Thomas, you know, used the example of a valet who's allowed to take your car, can't then take it for a joyride. Basically, they're saying, come on, look at this. Uh, The guy clearly exceeded authorized access. If you were to ask a person what happened here, they would say, yes, he did that. And so you had Barrett, on the other hand, saying... We're not just asking a common person what they think about this. We're looking to what this anti-hacking law says. So, I mean, I think it's clear that Justice Thomas needs to go back and watch Ferris Bueller um, because clearly joyriding is allowed. Uh, One thing I wanted to ask you about, Jordan, is the lineup here. We mentioned it's not your grandma's 6-3. So hold on to your grandma's and tell us what is the split here. Sure. Joining Barrett, we had the other two. Trump appointees, Gorsuch and Kavanaugh, and the three Democratic appointees. And we had the more senior Republican appointees left there in the dissent with Justice Thomas writing and joined by Roberts and Alito. Yeah, it's interesting. This is the seventh um, 6-3 or 5-3 opinion. Um, That's important because, you know, obviously Barrett wasn't on the court for several cases. And only four of those seven have come down along ideological lines with Breyer, Sotomayor, and Kagan in dissent. The others have seen different mixes uh, of the conservative justices. All three are are different. 
Before we go on to um, our guest, I just wanted to note um, some eagle-eyed person noted that this was Breyer's first majority opinion assignment ever. Mm. So, okay, so here's how this goes. The Supreme Court, they get together, they chat, they're like, hey, what do we want to do in this case? And they're all like, we're going to come down 6-3. And then they decide in seniority of the justices gets to pick who's going to write the majority opinion with some caveats that I won't go into here. Um, so you go down the line, you start with Justice Roberts. Well, Roberts is in dissent, so he can't assign it. You go to Justice Thomas. He's in the dissent. He can't assign it. And Justice Breyer gets to do it for the first time ever, and he assigns it to Barrett. And I wonder what that says, um, you know, if we kind of take out the other exceptions that he has to follow in making these assignments. I wonder if it's kind of a nod to his, you know, project these days that the Supreme Court is not political. So Barrett is going the carry the torch for Breyer's legacy. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, I mean, it, whether or not empirically the court is not political or not, we do know that Justice Breyer sees it that, that way, and I wonder if that was a factor. Yeah, I mean, this is a pretty cool and significant opinion for Barrett to be writing this early. Mm-hmm. Um, and a 6-3, you know, really divided. Yeah, Yeah. so it definitely is a, an interesting opinion, and I think for that reason, too, it is... Yeah, he could have, for one, he could have written it himself, right? I mean, this is... <laughs> Presumably. I mean, there's a lot we don't know about what had, you know, what other things had been assigned. and But there are nine cases, so somebody's going to get, you know, a, a couple more. And Breyer hasn't written anything from that sitting yet. So. Oh, well, maybe there's some, maybe he's playing some higher level chess where in giving this uh, bone of a case to Barrett, maybe he's positioning himself for something that he'd rather write. Does that make sense or would that not possibly be how it works yeah i mean that's all a lot of speculation at this point this is it where's this is the speculation zone (laughs) you've entered the speculation zone ninth circuit jordan sure let's go back there to the cooley case that we're gonna talk about with our guest i'll set it up just a little bit some of the facts so you know what it is we're getting into here and setting the scene Late one night in the winter of 2016, we're on U.S. Highway 212. That's a public right-of-way within the Crow Reservation in Montana. We have James Saylor, a Crow police officer on patrol. He sees a truck parked on the side of the road, goes to check it out. And in the car was Joshua James Cooley and his young child in the back. Cooley's eyes were watery and bloodshot, allegedly. And important fact for later, the officer thought Cooley looked non-native. The officer saw two semi-automatic rifles on the front seat. He ordered Cooley out of the truck, patted him down. The officer saw a glass pipe in a bag with meth, and he called for backup, which included a federal officer from the Bureau of Indian Affairs. And the tribal officer was directed to seize all contraband in plain view, which included more meth. So Cooley was charged federally for guns and drugs because... Generally, tribes don't have criminal jurisdiction over non-Indians. That's something we're going to get into with our guest who's going to explain why that is. But what happened in this case was the evidence was suppressed in federal court and the Ninth Circuit affirmed the suppression, reasoning that a tribal officer could stop and detain a non-Indian suspect only if the officer first tries to determine whether the suspect is non-Indian and while doing so finds an apparent violation of state or federal law. And in a unanimous opinion by Justice Breyer, the court said a tribal officer can temporarily detain and search non-Indian persons traveling on public rights of way, running through a reservation for potential violations of state or federal law, and said the Ninth Circuit's test had 
workability issues. But for all of that in the backdrop of all this overlapping jurisdiction between state and federal or tribal, let's go to our guest. Mary Catherine Nagel is a partner at Pipe Stem and Nagel, specializing in federal Indian law and appellate litigation. In the Cooley case, Mary Catherine was lead counsel on an amicus brief cited in the court's unanimous opinion. She filed that brief for the National Indigenous Women's Resource Center, Tribes, and Tribal Organizations. Thanks so much for coming on and helping us to break down this complex and important issue. Well, thanks so much for having me. Given this complexity, I'm wondering if we could start with a little of the backdrop of, before even getting into the Cooley case specifically, how we're in this mess of overlapping, conflicting, however you would put it, authority on reservations between tribal, federal, and state law enforcement. Great question, right? And it's, it is the result of hundreds of years of decisions from the Supreme Court, as well as statutes from Congress that say which sovereign can exercise jurisdiction where. And if you think about it historically, before the United States came into existence, there was no question about tribal nations being able to exercise jurisdiction. And I just like to remind us all of that, because I think sometimes we get lost in, you know, in understanding where we are today. Like, it's also important to understand where we once were. And, you know, my great, 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 great grandfather was speaker of our tribal council at Cherokee Nation in the 1820s when we uh, created our Cherokee Nation Supreme Court. And we had a Supreme Court at Cherokee Nation 20 years before the state of Georgia had one. We prosecuted anyone who committed crimes on Cherokee Nation lands. It didn't matter if you were a citizen of Cherokee Nation or France or, you know, uh, Vermont. Um, if you were in Cherokee Nation and committing crimes, you would be prosecuted by Cherokee Nation. What happened in 1978 is that the Supreme Court issued a decision called Oliphant and said in that decision, tribes can no longer exercise criminal jurisdiction over non-Indians. You'll note that um, Justice Breyer's majority opinion in Cooley actually references Oliphant and says, you know, as we said in Oliphant, we're saying it again here, uh, it is up to Congress whether or not tribes have this authority. I, I think that's right. I think the court has always, um, in a separation of powers analysis, looked to Congress and said, Congress has authority over Indian affairs. But then, of course, that does beg the question, well, how did, how did the court have the authority to take tribal criminal jurisdiction away from tribes in 1978? But, but it's there. It's on the books. And so since then, that's been the case that tribes do not have criminal jurisdiction over non-Indians on tribal lands. Congress in 2013, in the reauthorization of the Violence Against Women Act, restored tribal criminal jurisdiction over three categories of non-Indian perpetrated crime, domestic violence, dating violence, and violation of protection orders. So it, it is complicated because if you are on tribal lands and the crime is committed by an Indian, then most likely, again, there can be some exceptions, but like you're, you're looking at the federal government or the tribal nation that will have jurisdiction to prosecute. If the crime is committed by a non-Indian, it's most likely going to be the state and not the tribal nation, like I said, because of Oliphant. So then how does this Cooley decision fit into this complicated landscape? What uh, Justice Breyer ultimately found is that tribal nations have an inherent authority to stop and detain and uh, what these stops are um, in this, what they were in this situation and what they are practically speaking on the ground is if a non-Indian is suspected of committing crimes on tribal lands, then 
tribal law enforcement do have the authority, even if they don't have the criminal jurisdiction to prosecute, to simply stop it and detain and then um, hold that person until the state or federal authorities can get there, depending on who has jurisdiction in that scenario. I think that the way Justice Breyer got there in this decision was interesting. What Justice Breyer did is he looked at a case called Montana, because in that case, the uh, the issue was, do tribes have civil jurisdiction over non-Indians? Keep in mind, three years ago, the Supreme Court had taken away criminal jurisdiction over non-Indians. And the Crow Nation at that time was exercising um, civil authority with regards to a hunting license, I believe, um, but not criminal authority, right? So it wasn't a criminal case, it was a civil case. And there the Supreme Court said, yes, tribes do have civil jurisdiction over non-Indians on tribal lands if it fits into one of these two things. And, and one is um, sort of a contractual consent agreement idea or standard. And the second one is basically if the non-Indians behavior, if what the tribe is trying to regulate and regulating the non-Indians behavior goes to the health and welfare of the tribe, then then the tribe has civil jurisdictions. And that's what Justice Breyer found here. He said, look, um, looking at Montana number two, uh, it is very clear that this affects the public health and welfare of the tribe because you're talking about law enforcement being able to stop and detain people who are suspected of committing a crime on a public highway going through the reservation. If you can't, then you, know, you could have drunk drivers but they're, you, don't know, you don't know that they're a tribal citizen, so now you can't stop and detain them? I mean, that would be devastating for public safety on, on reservations. I have a question about Montana, and it's a little bit outside of this case, but you talked about the two exceptions, and I think, um, you know, the courts kind of explored that first one quite a bit. The second one, I wonder, besides this case, what else has the court found to be a health and safety exception? Well, uh, this is a great question. Um, We actually researched this because I will tell you that I filed an amicus brief along with my co-author, Sarah Deer, in 2015 in the Dollar General case on behalf of my client, the National Indigenous Women's Resource Center. Similar case uh, and different to Cooley, but it was about civil jurisdiction. And in that case, Dollar General was asking the Supreme Court, and they were basically saying point blank in their oral argument and in their briefs, hey, you took away criminal jurisdiction, tribal criminal jurisdiction over non-Indians and Oliphant, just, just, just do it. Just do the deed. Get rid of tribal. And they were making the argument, you know, it's unconstitutional, blah, blah, blah. All those arguments that folks make that I think are very unfounded against tribal, uh, civil or criminal jurisdiction. But in that case, uh, we did make that argument in our brief. And it was an amicus brief for the NWC. Now, in that case, the tribe was exercising civil jurisdiction over employment, negligent employment supervision claims that parents had brought after their child, who was an intern at the Dollar General store, was repeatedly sexually assaulted by the Dollar General non-Indian store manager. And, and so their claims were pretty vanilla, straight up, like you can find those tort claims in pretty much every jurisdiction across the United States. And uh, it just simply happened to be that this was taking place within the Mississippi Ban of Choctaw Indians jurisdiction. So we made the argument that, um, because of course they were arguing this doesn't fit into Montana at all, most folks in that case were focused on Montana number one, simply because Dollar General had signed a lease 
with the tribe. They were actually leasing the tribe's property and, and in that lease had consented to tribal jurisdiction. So that it seemed to be very obvious that that, that Dollar General case was Montana number one. We were an amicus. And, and so we just wanted to also, I think, for greater policy reasons, make this argument to the court that you said this in 1981. You know, you created the standard. This is what the standard is for. These cases fall within that. We could not find any Supreme Court case or appellate level federal court case saying this is Montana number two. There were some um, district court cases across the country that would refer to it. Um, but really, there's no governing precedent on the, this is the first. And, and, and I will say, I mean, not to just completely toot my own horn, but I was actually talking with some of my team because we fought, we, like in 2015, we were like, okay, clearly if a tribe is exercising civil jurisdiction to protect their children or their members from this kind of, you know, um, criminal conduct, really, same thing, right, in, in Cooley, Crow Nation doesn't have criminal jurisdiction. Um, so does this fit into Montana number two? Absolutely, because as, as Justice Breyer pointed out, how else can you protect the health and welfare of your entire nation if you can't protect you know, your children, which is Dollar General, or in this case, you know, folks who are just driving down a highway um, you know, next to their homes? So health and welfare, those are pretty broad terms, right? And given now that you've won this victory here and have you know, maybe even in a way that was unexpected to some, does not just the victory itself, but the way it was achieved open up any new avenues in federal Indian law that maybe you hadn't thought of before? I don't know what it would be, but is there any implication even beyond this sort of limited criminal detention context? Well, that's a great question, um, because I think that um, one thing in this case that I found to, to be very um, important, right? Yes, the court referenced Oliphant and acknowledged that, hey, you know, tribes, because of this decision, don't have criminal jurisdiction over non-Indians. But that is, that is for Congress to decide whether that should stay the same, whether they want to restore. Um, that may seem like to some people like, well, what's so special about that? Because the court acknowledged that in 1978, when it, when it wrote Oliphant, the court has repeatedly acknowledged this authority that Congress has. Well, not everyone is agreeing with that. We've got a few folks in the Senate who are really fighting that and who are arguing now, right now today, against the 2021 Reauthorization of the Violence Against Women Act on the basis that H.R. 1620, which came out of the House, if passed through the Senate and signed by President Biden, would restore additional categories of non-Indian perpetrated crimes over non-Indians on tribal lands, including stranger sexual assault. I mean, keep in mind the 2013 reauthorization of VAWA is all like domestic violence crimes, right? So if, if you're dealing with um, something that's outside of the relationship of an intimate partner relationship, then, then there's no way you're going to have any criminal jurisdiction over that non-Indian. And so, um, and also it hasn't covered child abuse. So we've had a lot of cases where tribes have prosecuted um, a non-Indian domestic abuser, but they can only prosecute that non-Indian for the crimes committed against his spouse or dating partner or her dating partner. Sometimes, sometimes women do commit these crimes against men or same-sex partners. And, you know, it's not, it's not always a male-on-female situation, but um, it most often is. And, and uh, oftentimes, too, there are kids involved. And sometimes kids are actually physically, verbally, or sexually abused. And right now, the tribes 
we don't have that jurisdiction to prosecute those crimes. So, so the House passed the bipartisan version. It is now getting s- stuck a bit in the Senate. I have high hopes that we'll get a bipartisan bill for the Senate. It's a tiny, tiny handful of people who keep saying their mantra that tribal criminal juris- like that Congress does not have the authority to restore this jurisdiction to tribes. But I think what's really helpful is like, yes, practically speaking, Cooley affirms tribal law enforcement can stop and detain non-Indians suspected of committing crimes on tribal lands. If they can't ultimately, if they don't have the authority to arrest or prosecute, they have the authority to detain long enough for the sovereign that does have that authority to get there. Beyond that, I think it's a very, it's coming at a very critical moment for our VAWA reauthorization efforts. And I think it really helps to show the folks that are the detractors <laughs> in the Senate that, that really um, they're, they're not, their arguments have no constitutional support, right? They're, they're actually not making constitutional arguments. Looking forward to what the Supreme Court is going to be doing in these types of cases, you mentioned the McGirt case. Heading into McGirt, federal Indian law practitioners like yourself were, let's say, skeptical of what the court would do in these cases, and for good reason. Is it an overstatement to say that with McGirt and other recent decisions and the Cooley decision that you're looking at a new court these days, or is that too soon to tell? Or is there has there been a shift? I think there's definitely been a shift. And I think most of us, it's very easy to attribute it to Justice Gorsuch. And I think he he does deserve that credit um, because he his approach to Indian law is with an intellectual rigor that we haven't truly seen on the Supreme Court before with a few exceptions however unfortunately far too often like for instance if you try to follow follow the Montana line of cases good luck I mean you know any law professor that tries to teach Montana and its progeny is like yes Montana said that tribes have you know, civil jurisdiction over non-Indians in these two categories. And then every case that goes up to the Supreme Court after that, it's like, oh, obviously that fits into one, you know, that fits into this. No, it doesn't. Well, why doesn't it? It just doesn't. And they're, and they're very outcome determinative. I would, I would say without a lot of substance or, um, you know, underlying like clear, clear, like judicial theory. So that's huge that we now have a justice on the court who has experience adjudicating Indian law cases from the 10th Circuit. A lot of our justices come to the Supreme Court with very little experience. And as um, Illuminatives research has done, Illuminatives is an excellent nonprofit sort of highlighting native invisibility in the United States. The majority of law schools in the United States do not teach federal Indian law. The majority of state bars don't have Indian law questions on the exam. So you know, it's an and until Justice Gorsuch, none of the justices hired native law clerks. He was the first to ever hire. And it's not because we haven't been applying. I will say that. So um, and, you know, and we've we've had amazing graduates from Yale and Harvard and you pick the top law school and they went to circuit clerkships and they just we just didn't. It was a glass ceiling. We hadn't broken until Gorsuch got there. Now, Beyond Gorsuch, it's it's not just Gorsuch, obviously. I think um, Justice Sotomayor is clearly also someone who approaches it with an intellectual rigor. She just didn't have all the votes until Gorsuch got there. And th- and I think what's great too is obviously um, Justice Gorsuch being a you know a President Trump appointee and sort of what we consider more of a conservative ideologue. That you know, I think I think there's hope too that what he might be able to do is sort of help educate his colleagues that that share that ideology with him on the fact that you know 
you want to be a, a textualist. <laughs> Let's get down to what the words in the Constitution actually say. Treaties are the supreme law of the land. You've got hundreds of treaties that could not be more clear about what the relationship is between the federal government and tribal nations. So Supreme Court, your job is to uphold the supreme law of the land because the Constitution tells you to. So I think it's a, it is de- a definite shift. It is a new day. It is, it is, you know, I tell people McGirt was our Brown v. Board of Education. It, it truly was. It truly was. And we have a lot more work to do because, for instance, there's still cases like Oliphant on the books <laughs> um, that are very harmful. And I, I think um, not based on actual principles of law, but instead just prejudice, really, about what tribal court systems are and, and capable of doing. Um, and I, But I think we're going to get there. And now, will it be today? Will it be tomorrow? You know, um, no, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know exactly when that will be, but I, I do think that we are at a very exciting for, for native folks, for Indian law practitioners. This is an incredibly exciting time because we're and, and you know, we're seeing the court engage with the briefs and the law. I mean, the fact that Justice Breyer was citing the amicus briefs and saying these, you know, these important points weren't being made. And, and here's how it factors in. It just really shows the intellectual rigor the court is now applying to these Indian law cases, whereas before, you know, I interviewed for the illuminative research I just uh, mentioned, I actually did some of those interviews, and I interviewed former Supreme Court law clerks who literally told me when I clerked at the Supreme Court, you know, 20, 30 years ago, 10 years ago, no one wanted to get be handed an Indian law case. That was considered the, the um, intellectual light like they, you know, you want the intellectual challenging cases, right? Like, like the First Amendment case, you know, or, you know, those are, those are the, the and, and they're a big deal, right? And Indian law cases were just like loser cases, right? Not important, not interesting, not intellectual. And I think what we're seeing with what's coming out of the court now is that hopefully we can shift that attitude too. Well, we'll have to see what happens. But until then, thanks so much for coming on and breaking this all down with us. Sounds great. Well, thank you so much for having me, and and thank you so much for your coverage of of this important victory for Indian country. Yeah, Jordan, so you mentioned this was another loss for the Ninth Circuit. They're batting 0-6 right now, and there's lots more to come, lots more opinions out of the Ninth Circuit for the Supreme Court to, you know... Lose? uh, Yeah. The court has announced that it is going to bash on the Ninth Circuit again, or at least issue some more rulings uh, next week, Monday and Thursday. I'd expect the court to continue multiple opinion days throughout the remainder of the term, possibly adding more than just two days as we get closer to the end of June. And until then, you can follow along with all the latest Supreme Court news at news.bloomberglaw.com. For our next season of Uncommon Law, we're looking at the regulatory future of big tech. The giants need to be broken up. Facebook, Google, all of them. Is big tech impinging on your right to free speech? They've had unchecked power to censor, restrict, edit, shape, hide, alter. Misinformation, disinformation. It's like a big Venn diagram. We do not want to become the arbiters of truth. We're calling this series Unchecked. Just search for Uncommon Law wherever you get your podcasts.